This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I know you don't like to talk about sports, but I have to tell you about my new favorite sport. Okay. So it's not football. It's not basketball. It's not baseball. It's not hockey. It's not tennis. It's not golf. It's not professional puzzle putting together it is (laughs) t-ball okay how did t-ball become your new favorite sport i remember watching the boys play t-ball 28 years ago and thinking well this is this is very stressful and i'm not having any fun doing this at all watching t-ball and now watching grandkids play t-ball is a completely different thing how and, is it different? Oh, I, I, I don't. I guess it's just that that it's the difference is that it's a generation further away. <laughs> or you're not and responsible for that. I'm or? not responsible for like I can I can take Wyatt out and practice with him for a little bit, like one day every couple of weeks. But that's it. I can't go out in the backyard every night and practice with him. So that's probably it. But this is all the kids are four years old. They, and I'm sure everybody that's listening knows what T-ball is and has probably seen T-ball games, but I've, I've not ever experienced anything like this. My, in growing up with the kids, they did a lot of competitive things and some of it at a pretty high level. And it was so stinking stressful. Um, You know, are they going to, is, is this going to go wrong? Is that going to go wrong? Are they, you know, whatever, all, all these things you want so badly for them to do well so that they're not disappointed and upset. But T-ball, like the kids don't really know. Even the little kid that goes up and swings nine times and never hits the ball. He doesn't know that he's done anything, you know, that he's any different than anybody else. He finally hits it. The crowd goes wild. And he maybe will remember to run to first base. It's just, it's, it is the greatest. It's, it's, it's so much fun for me because I love to cheer and I, cheer for everybody and I'm cheering for the other team. So because I'm cheering for the other team, all the families on our side are cheering for the other team and the people on the other side of the field are looking at us like we're crazy, but it is just so much fun. This past week there were, our team has five players and we, we had one game where we played against a team with 11 players. And this past week we played against a team with three players and, oh my God. The, the scores were exactly the same. Both teams won. Hand, all teams, you know, everybody's a winner when you play team. Right. But it's like the last, the first kid goes up, you whack, whack, whack until you hit the ball far enough that it's, you get to run to first base. Next kid comes up, whack, 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 hit the ball, run to first base. And it works its way around until the last kid who hits it, and then everybody runs all around the bases. And the kids are so <laughs> happy running all around the bases. It is so awesome. And it's just, it just filled with joy. It's just, it's such a joy to watch. And uh, it's like, I, I have found that since I've been watching the kids play t-ball, I have no interest in watching like real sports now or higher level sports. 
it's just so much fun (laughs) to see this unmitigated joy just burst forth. When you were talking about it, I had this, um, I don't know, memory, not really a memory, just a a connection. Because you know how during, um, I guess it's football or Super Bowl, they have Puppy Bowl? I, I may have missed that. So it's it's puppies are playing <laughs> like quote unquote football, right? And I, I got I was thinking that how much the world could use a T ball station right now, a channel yes. where all you do yes. is see replays of little kids trying to hit the ball, trying to catch the ball, running to the wrong base. I mean, because it's like watching puppies, not to insult anybody's children or not to insult anybody's puppies, but that's really what it's like, you know, <laughs> there's just that, that joy and it, it, I, I, I would watch that. I don't watch sports, but I would watch. Yeah. And you just, you know, the kid, fact that kids. something's happening and everybody is cheering for the same thing. There's nobody saying like, oh, you know, that kid's got his hat, his hat on sideways. He's trying to make a political statement. No, he's a, he's a kid. He doesn't know how to put yeah. his hat on straight. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's awesome. It is so much fun, and the kids have so much fun, and uh, I, I am so happy that we not only have a four-year-old, we have a two-year-old who will move into it again in another so two years. So you get years. to watch T-ball I get to do for it a few all more years, over right? again. Yes, I'm, I'm yeah. going to be a T-ball professional. That's hilarious. All right, so we do actually have a topic for today's show, and it kind of ties in with, with T-ball, because in telling that story that I told, I, there were a certain number of details that I had to get right. And, you know, some that I could kind of fudge on. But you, as a listener, Taylor, may have been making some assumptions as you were (laughs) building this analogy of the puppy ball. And that can be dangerous, making assumptions. (laughs) You you, you slid right in there on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a baseball analogy? Because if it was, that was really good. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so... As Steve has hinted, um, today's subject is about getting the details right. And so I suppose if we wanted to categorize it, we'd say that this is a story issue um, and would break that down into it being research. But the, the real... Where it differs from all the other times we've talked about research or whatever is this is about the danger of assumptions. And I'm sure we've discussed this at some point over the last five or what are we going on? Six years now. Um, I'm sure it's come up before, but I don't think we've ever really focused, focused on the issue of assumptions themselves. And this is where it comes into play is that we all come into life or storytelling based on our lives, I guess is what I'm trying to say. We bring baggage with us to the table, right? Um, We bring what we know or rather what we think we know. So take myself, for example, I read a lot of news and I don't like read any particular news source. Like I'm not like, Oh, I read the New York times or I read the Washington post or whatever. I just, just random stuff falls into my lab and it's very eclectic and just follow different things that are of my own particular interest. 
Um, and it's because I like to learn. I like to learn new things. And when I come across a subject that I'm unfamiliar with, but that interests me, I tend to sort of um, follow it down a rabbit hole. And it, it leads to a fair number of deep dives, not turning me into an expert or something, but where I have sort of basic working knowledge of a very wide range of subjects. And then you combine that, I probably would say it's fair that I have maybe experienced more than my fair share of life in the years that I've been alive. Um, so just when you combine all of that, I have a really broad repertoire to draw from. And not just normal life stuff, but just kind of off the wall, bizarre stuff that that's in this bank of knowledge. So it's a, a bit of a larger than average bank of knowledge, I guess you could say. But even with all of that, it would be just insane to think that I would know everything that needs to be known about a subject without double checking, right? And it's like that for all of us. We have so many things, so many assumptions of how the world works. And a lot of those even come from television. Like I hardly even watch television and I've still got so many assumptions. And um, when I first started writing, I was so just naive about how the world worked. I mean, I, I knew how things worked in places I lived in Africa, but just not how the world worked. And I think the first time this really came to mind was when I was writing The Innocent. Like when I go back and I read some things in The Informationist, I'm a little bit embarrassed, <laughs> not about the story or about the writing, but by some of the cliches that made their way in. And I know we've talked about this before um, because of that lack of understanding of how the world worked and having gotten my education above the world from TV, like, and, and I know this has come up before of, you know, someone who entered the new of the United States from movies instead of actually living here. And you just, you get, you got my, got my education like someone from Europe would have gotten about the United States just from movies without really knowing how it works. Right. Um, and some of that stuff actually managed to filter its way into some of the books before it kind of wised up. And, um, you know, when I was doing The Innocent, there's this scene where I was looking for some kind of um, sleeping agent. I, I was thinking of using it as a plot device where, you know, someone would roll like a canister into a room or something. You've seen it on TV a million times, you know, where the fog's up and everybody falls asleep. And and so I was like, okay, well, maybe I could use that for this scene. And But, you know, I didn't really understand how it worked or maybe it was like I didn't know how long it was going to take. And so I went and looked it up and I realized that it didn't even exist. It's like pure fiction. And and I I've seen this type of stuff show up in books. Well, I especially see it in television now. And I just, I, I, I'm annoying to anybody who actually is sitting there with me while I'm watching it. Like, didn't happen, never happened, couldn't happen, impossible, nope. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll just start, I, I get irritated because as, as a novelist, you're required to get those details right, but there's so much license for just skipping over the, the accuracy in, in screenwriting, apparently, just based on, on what I've seen. And I'm not talking about like, um, 
you know, science fiction or, you know, futuristic movies. I'm talking about just everyday stuff or thrillers or, you know, suspense stories or whatever. There's just so much that goes wrong that it's like, nope, didn't happen, never happened, couldn't happen. So anyway, I have gotten that close to getting entire pivotal scenes uh, written around wrong stuff based on things that I've seen on television or how I understood the world to work. And that's what sort of started me off now where I double check everything, even things that I'm 100% certain that I know, I double check them because I realize how easy it is for your assumptions of how things work to be wrong. And where this really gets me, and it gets me in books, it gets me on television, um, is where it comes to issues of points of law and regulations and restrictions and bureaucratic procedures, the process of getting anything done, equipment, technological things. Um, you, You see it in movies all the time where an assassin will get off the flight and all of a sudden they've got a gun. How the heck does that happen in this modern day world with TSA screenings and blah, blah, blah? Sure, it can be done. Um, But it's not like they get off a plane and they just pull a gun out of their waistband. That did not happen. You want to get mobbed by a bunch of police officers who dogpile onto you, airport security, you drive that (laughs) and see how long it takes before you see sunlight again. But it happens in the movies all the time. So those types of things, right? And if you're not aware of what's going on and and you you don't look look it up, you can get that stuff into your books just inadvertently and unnecessarily. Um, And I will tell you that readers are a whole lot less forgiving (laughs) than movie go movie watchers are and tv watchers are so this like right now it especially is frustrating to me because of the way um social media has turned everybody into an expert like whatever the whatever the current uh, thing that's happening in the news is everybody's an expert on what to do about it so um i haven't looked at the internet yet today, but as of yesterday, there was a big, big fat stuck in the Suez Canal. That will date this podcast for you on exactly what day we're recording it. But now that we've got big boy there stuck across this international shipping lane, everybody and their brother is an expert on getting ships, massive ships, like the size of the Empire State Building unstuck, right? Um, And it certainly wouldn't have happened with them at the helm. And you've got all these people who are like, no way it it, it couldn't have happened with this or that. And then you get experts on there who are like, hey, I've been in shipping and and I think it's a, a miracle that that boat managed to get stuck so safely without hurting cargo, without hurting this. And they get into the details of why. But that everybody's an expert. Everybody's an expert. And so the danger is you become such an expert on everything that you just expert your way into some one-star reviews. (laughs) So the safest thing you can do is double check your assumptions, right? 
And but the problem with that is a lot of times these assumptions don't even cross our minds as being assumptions. Like we don't know what it is we don't know because we think we actually know it. And it's it's not even the big stuff that gets you in. It's the small things, the inconsequential things, things that maybe you even do have experience in, like, you know, marriage and divorce and having children and, you know, driving through traffic, getting arrested for a DWI, you know, getting tossed in jail for for that. Like these are the types of, of just mundane things that either we assume that everybody's experience is the same as ours, or we think it works the way it does on TV. Like if you've never had any experience with dealing with the court system and you think it's all the way it is on, you know, law and order, which I've never seen, but which I've heard a lot about, um, you're going to really, mess up your stories, especially if there are any big plot points that are, revolve around things happening and you're relying on that as your basis for reality. But even more so, it doesn't work the same from state to state. Like every state has its own way of doing things. And sometimes it's down to different counties have their own way of doing things. And that's why you're not an expert. Lawyers are in that particular sense. Right. So like I, if you've never gone through a divorce, but you've got a plot point that involves a divorcing couple, don't assume you understand the divorce process based on what you've seen on television. And if you've been through a divorce don't assume it's the same in Montana as it is in North Dakota. And even if you've been through a divorce in North Dakota, don't assume your experience alone is enough to understand what the actual process is, legally speaking. Now, granted, unless you're writing a law, a, a book like, you know, a John Grisham novel where it's all legalese, it doesn't have to, you, you're not going into all that detail, but the problem comes up when, um, you think you know it and you don't know that you don't know it. And maybe even that's based on your own experience because all your own life experience gets you is just a few steps closer to knowing where to start in clarifying or confirming what it is you think, you know, you still have to look it up. And so you might be asking like, okay, well, what does it even matter if you get the details of a divorce, right? I mean, you're not writing a story about divorce. It's just a small scene, but every scene has to serve a purpose, right? And if the scene isn't driving the plot forward or revealing character or involving conflict, then it doesn't belong. So while it's possible to write a scene in which you can drive the plot forward, reveal character or add conflict without actually knowing what it is you're writing about, it's going to require a lot of vagueness and a lack of detail, in which case, why is there even a scene involving divorce at all? Right. And I'm talking about divorce here because I have an example in mind, but it could be anything. We could, it, it could be driving a race car. It could be motorcycles. Like I had to learn about motorcycles. I don't, I, I'm not really, I mean, I've been on motorcycles, but I'm not a like, an avid motorcyclist, cyclist, whatever. Um, and, and I didn't know a lot about them. And when I first started 
I hadn't been on one or had much experience with one when I first started writing the Monroe story, uh, the informationist, and I didn't know the terminology for how to describe. I didn't know what fairings were, which are the the plastic fancy parts out that 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 are on the outside of the the whole inner workings of it. And and so not knowing that simple thing, I was describing stuff in a way that anybody who knew anything about motorcycles would just laugh at. And it, it, when you have somebody who's described something that you know is wrong, it makes it really hard to buy into and believe the whole rest of the story, even if they're right on everything else, because you already know from your point of view that they got something wrong. So like as an example, I read this story in which there was this plot twist that hinged on one half of a divorcing couple trying to gain leverage over the other. And this one half believed that the other half was going to lie and say horrible things about them to get the judge to award sole custody of the children. But the request for sole custody, that had never actually happened yet. Um, the scene evolved around trying to preempt that and, and make it so that the person who was going to lie to get sole custody was in a bad position and couldn't do that anymore, right? So this scene, it took place at this conference table, and I, I can only assume that that was doubling as a courtroom, but there wasn't any mention of a judge. And then there was this small break, which I guess was an adjournment, in which the parties, they kind of separated to cool off. And during that break, there were some twisty things going on, um, like all this plot stuff started coming into play. The characters put their cards all on the table to make whatever happened was going to happen. And when those characters all came back together again, the party who was going to fight for sole custody never ends up asking for it. And I read that and my brain went, nope, no way, didn't happen, couldn't happen. And the reason for that is, even though I'm not a lawyer, I know enough about law in general. Now, again, this is I, I'm still making assumptions here because I'm speaking very generally. And who knows? I very well could be wrong about the way it works in some particular place that I haven't researched. See where I'm getting at? But in general, my understanding of law is that unless this was a non-contested divorce, which it wasn't, and unless it was some sort of outside the courtroom mediation attempt, which it wasn't, then this scene had to play out in front of a judge. And those parties, they don't get to a judge without first filing their motions. And in those motions, the parties, they lay out their claims of what it is they're asking for and what they want the judge to do. And the judge is the one who's looking at both sides and he's trying to figure out who gets what and why, or she's trying to figure out who gets what and why. And by the time they get up there and start arguing in front of the judge, the judge has already got all this documentation, these motions and counter motions and blah, 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 that have been filed. And if that's the way it works in general, then you can't have a situation where the deviousness of a character keeps someone from asking for full custody of the children because that request for full custody would have already been laid out in a motion before they ever got to the judge. You follow? So this major plot point that turned on this deviousness taking place, it never could have happened, according to my understanding. 
But you see, I only really, really know how it works in the state of Texas. And this scene didn't take place in Texas. So while I can assume that certain aspects are pretty standard from state to state, I don't actually know that that's the case with that one particular scene. But what I do know is that the details that should have been there to give this scene that sense of reality that says, hey, this is really how it works where I am, they weren't there. It was all just kind of vague and glossed over. So there weren't really any details bolstering the scene. It just existed as it was. And I, I couldn't buy any of it. I was like, no, this, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. They very well could have. But because it didn't have those details, my assumption was that the scene was written based off assumption. But I was the reader. And in that particular instance, my assumption is what, what ranked because that was going to keep me from reading other books by the same author. So that's why not making, not working off your assumptions is important. There's so many assumptions that we all carry with us. And that's what leads us into traps of cliches and stereotypes and even really, um, in, many, in some cases, uh, unfortunate offenses. Like we're not meaning to give offense to anybody, but because we're not aware and we haven't taken the time to look into a specific thing, we don't realize that there's even an issue there and we just blow right past it. So it doesn't mean like you have to get so bogged down in researching every single little thing but it means, means you need to be constantly questioning yourself. Is this really how it works? Is that really what somebody would say? Is that really how it's done? And you look and the, the, the internet is right there. It's right at your fingertips. And all it takes is a quick search of how does blah, blah, blah in blah, blah, blah. And unless you're writing some obscure part of the world, which I happen to be doing right now, you're going to turn up so many links you don't know what to do with. And if you're writing some obscure part of the world where, like I am right now, then you just got to kind of take what you can get and hope that you're close. <laughs> but anyway, the whole point of this is details are very important. Getting them right is important, but not because you're trying to write a um, how-to manual or, a you know, this stone was right by this. It's, it's important in the sense of challenging your assumptions about how the, where, the world works and saving yourself the misery of finding out towards the end of your story that it doesn't work because you were assuming something that wasn't true. I finished a book the other day that I, I, I was really enjoying and it was a, a police procedural. Um, it was first book in a series. Well, first book that there haven't been any subsequent books yet, but I assume that this was the start of a series the 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 protagonist was was really well defined, a, a, an engaging character. Uh, everything about the setup for a series was was really well done, and it was the crime involved football players, NFL football players, and there was this this 
the reason for the crime was to somehow generate money under the table to pay under the table for a player. And I'm like, that's absurd. <laughs> it's like someone had, had gone to all this trouble to create this great story, but the crime made absolutely no sense at all. For and anybody who understood sports. For anyone who understood, who even had, like, watched football on TV. I, I can only assume that, that the author was conflating college and pro football and needed to make it pro football for okay. for for some reason but it, it's it's like yeah this it, it doesn't work this way and they were, they were talking about well this team doesn't have enough money to pay and this other team does and it's like no no it really doesn't work that way you know there's a salary uh, cap and all this stuff is really simple and i was really looking forward to getting to the end of the book and writing a positive review and it's like i i couldn't write a negative review and i wasn't going to say hey well, the book was really great except for this one stupid thing so instead i wrote no review, which is the worst possible thing, I think. Well, it's not worse than a <laughs> well, bad no, not review. Worse than, but it doesn't, like, then other people are going to get in there and read it. And if they pick up on that, too, then they'll write the negative Well, and anyone so. who read it, who'd ever seen a pro football game would, like, you, if you had read it, you'd have said, that, I don't think that makes any sense. Not not that there's anything wrong with not with um, not really understanding football. So anyway. I, I'm not sure I would be the way. I, I might actually not pick up on that. Um, I, that, I'm that dumb with sports, but I, I do have an example of somebody who did it really, really well. Okay. And, um, this is a book called, we are all the same in the dark by Julia Heberlin, who happens to be a friend of mine. Um, that book is just, I, I couldn't, I, it was the first book I think I've ever read that I did not put it down, that I read it through from page one to the end in one uninterrupted sitting and not because I'm a fast reader, but because I could not put that book down. And I, we talked about it. We did a whole mm -hmm. podca yep. podcast episode about that book, but in that book, um, there are issues dealing with amputees and, um, specifically, uh, eyes, the, the work that goes into replacing an eye. Um, and the book is not about that. It's, it's, it's absolutely not about that. There just have to be characters in the book who have that in common. One had an eye replaced and the other is an amputee. And, but it is obvious from the, the way that the characters, that, that this, be, the way, and how do I put this? The fact that one is an amputee is not just a character trait. It's not just something said in passing. And it's not just that occasionally you see them put their leg on or take their leg off or anything like that. It is a part of who they are. It is, it is like um, when somebody's no longer seeing or someone who maybe is colorblind. It is, yes, it's something that, that is part of their life experience, but it also becomes part of their process of, of walking through the world and dealing with the world. And the way that um, not having a glass eye and having an empty socket would affect your interaction with the world, maybe your self-confidence or whatever. These were not plot points. These were not, the story didn't revolve around them. 
But you could tell there was so much research that had gone into it that the 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 aspects of these characters felt so authentic that it had to be real. And after I I finished reading that book, I I wrote to Julia and I said, and and I I said exactly this, that the, the level of authenticity that went into the details of, of the amputations and the, the false eye and whatever I said, it's, it's, I'm blown away by how you integrated that. Of course, I'm approaching it from a writing perspective, right? As, as a writer, how you integrated that so seamlessly into the story that the story couldn't, wouldn't be what it was without it. And yet it had nothing to do with the story itself. And, um, and she wrote back and she said, you know, out of all the editors, out of all the, um, the professionals that have touched this book. Not one person has mentioned anything about that, but I'm so grateful that you did because, and then she goes on to outline everything that went into understanding the experience of those with amputations or um, artificial limbs, artificial eyes or whatever. And then after the book was published, I started seeing the reviews come in for it and whatever it was those professionals didn't get, the readers were picking up on big time, just to much, much praise. And that's because she took the time to understand and not how easy it would have been to simply work off her assumptions of what it must be like or how, how it happened. She didn't have to integrate that into the story, but it created such level of depth and, and character, uh, character com- compellingness. <laughs> I can't wear this today. Um, and it, it added so much to the richness of the story, but that's a level of care that so many Authors, especially those who are in a rush, just don't take. They're, they're, they don't, it doesn't matter. It's just like, get the story out however it is in my imagination. But the, the oppor- there's so much lost opportunity in that to create such a deep, immersive character experience and deep, immersive world because you take the time to see past the surface see past your assumptions and and really try to learn what it is that you're writing about and you avoid i wrote this down because i loved it experting your way to a one-star review yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so that is our show for this week thank you taylor we will be back again next tuesday all right well thank you guys for being here and we will see you next week